Hey there. Come on in. Sit down. This is Full Cast and Crew. Can I get you something? Some punch? Uh, my neighbor gave me the recipe. She said the tartness mixed with the sweet reminded her of the promise and pressures of possibility offered by early summers back home. She's gone now. Choked on a marble. There's a story there, I'm sure, but her people didn't want to tell it, which is understandable, I guess. Anyway, sit where you like. Move those papers. Sorry, things are a little messy, but work's been busy. The wife left me. Money's tight, and frankly, I hate everyone around me, most of all myself. But that's the way of things, isn't it? Because I love them all, too. So what are you going to do? Except laugh together, follow some curvy paths, get lost, and see what we can learn from each other. And by the time we're done, those problems will be gone. Replaced by new ones, but along with heartbreaking bits of beauty, which you'll half recognize from something some well-meaning old fool mentioned to you sometime long ago, but you didn't really get until you did. Wow. McMurtry-esque. It was almost as if Flap was talking now with the benefit of hindsight. I thought it was funny. I thought it was moving. And in that way, it's such a good intro to the film that we're here to discuss. Yes. In terms of endearment. And Chris... When a movie's plot keywords include cancer, dying young, extramarital affair, terminal illness, and maybe most fraught of all, mother-daughter relationships, <laughs> you might be forgiven for thinking you're watching an episode of This Is Us or perhaps reading Chris's posthumous autobiography. And Chris, when a movie's tagline is, come to laugh, come to cry, come to care, come to terms... You might be forgiven for thinking you're in a funeral home waiting on Aunt Hildegard's service to begin. But when that movie is 1983's Terms of Endearment, Chris, what it really is, it's a master class in screenwriting, acting, film directing, and editing. And it's as good today as it was in 1983 when it garnered 11 Academy Award nominations. 11. I tripped over the word because I'm still astounded by that number. Is that the most Academy Award nominations of any film in history? That could well be. I we didn't have to think Google to look that. that. If but only we had a machine in front of us that contained all of the world's knowledge, we yeah. could find that out. Anyway, Chris, I didn't mean to spoil my take, but what can I say? I laughed. I cried. But this time around, I particularly laughed. While it's regarded as the biggest weepy of all time and the greatest mother-daughter movie of all time, it is fucking funny yeah. as hell. All I had heard before seeing it was like, oh, it's about cancer. I was like, oh, forget. But then I looked it up and it was the genre it's listed as is romantic comedy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just a, a little bit surprised. It is funny, but it's so much more than that. The same things that lead you to cry unless you're dead inside, which, you know, a I'm lot of so, our listeners are. Well, Chris, I'm particularly happy to hear you're not dead inside. No. I was afraid because <laughs> you haven't seen this movie before this screen. I hadn't seen it before. Did you weep tears? I, I don't know that I. Well, really? Maybe a little bit. Wow. Uh, but, you know, I'd heard, I cry like a baby. I'd heard so much about it. Right. What I loved was the surprising elements. Yes. But I think the comedy came from the same place as the tragedy that was all so keenly observed and character oriented. It kicks off with a scene I'd forgotten about. <laughs> I probably haven't seen it in five or six years. I forgot entirely about this scene. This is uh, our introduction to Aurora. Let me go just for a minute. Honey, you've been looking at that baby so much, you're going to stare her right into a coma. Oh, stop exaggerating. Honey, it's not good for you to be checking on the baby every five minutes and imagining one terrible thing or another. I know, I know. Here it starts. Here we go. Rudyard. Rudyard, she's not breathing. Honey, she's sleeping. The baby's sleeping. No. Rudyard, it's crib death. It's sleep. She's asleep, honey. Maybe. Come on. Emma, 
better. It just tells you so much about what you're about to experience and who everyone is. Yes. The off-screen voice of Rudyard, which I didn't know until doing the research. Uh-huh. Albert Brooks. Credited as A. Brooks. Another thing I was taken with in watching it this time, everyone in the movie is fantastic. It's one of those films that is a collection of absolutely perfect performances by everyone in the entire cast. But Shirley MacLaine's physical comedy really struck out. And the way that she so deftly uses her body and her clothes to comment comedically all the time. And in that scene, her brilliant... (laughs) Awkward climb because she gets into the crib to wake up the child. I still do this. Right. My child is seven and a half. I still go in. If I wake up at 2.30 in the morning and she's sound asleep peacefully and I jostle her until I can get some sort of like squirmy reaction so that I can be rest assured that she's still alive. (laughs) So I think for every parent, it's so perfect. And for setting the claustrophobic relationship between Aurora and Emma, it could be none more perfect. And then we're just kind of off and running. Another thing I love about it, and I know I've cited this many times, but this strikes me as yet another great example of the Kubrickian screenplay philosophy. For those of you who are only now coming to the podcast because everyone's talking about it and you just decided to listen. Hit pause, go back. I will reset it briefly for you. Kubrick's philosophy was people sit down, try to write a screenplay, and that's why it sort of inevitably fails probably 99% of the time. But if you take an existing book or piece of literature and you adapt that, you are ahead of the curve because you understand a tonal vibe that can only come to life in a book of 350 or 500 or 800 pages. I don't know how long this McMurtry tome was. (laughs) I assume it's at least 1,200. Let's assume it's at least 1,200. But I think that's why the way the movie covers 30 years, but doesn't feel like it. It's just the completeness of the whole thing, which obviously starts from McMurtry's characters who had the depth Brooks was able to capture in his screenplay. And then just these performances, which are uh, unbelievable for me to watch as a fan of acting. Deborah Winger was 28 when she made this. Yeah. (laughs) It's insane. I don't believe she had children at this point in her life, but man, she's so with the kids in the scenes with the children. She's such a specifically great kind of mom, her childlikeness herself. To go back to what you had said about Shirley MacLaine's physicality and her performance, before seeing this, I just knew of its popular reputation. And so I would almost be unsure, like, is that as funny as I think it is? Mm-hmm. And, as, and it was finally, and this is not to say that I'm as great a genius as Jean mm-hmm. Brooks, but there's one moment where she is, I think, first First observing her next door neighbor, yeah, Garrett. Garrett Breedlove. Because she has just got off the phone with her daughter and was disappointed yes. that the conversation wasn't longer. And uh, she hears something going on. So she's trying to look through yes. the slats. And I was thinking as she's doing it, as she's leaning closer, I was like, God, she's she's not going to fall, is she? <laughs> and then when she, act- she actually does, again, I was thinking, I really am just like James. But it was the perfect punchline because it was her characters being drawn into something in the same way that she ends up trying to climb into the crib in that opening scene. She is so drawn <laughs> to something to the point of falling over and not being able to do what she, yeah, and <laughs> what it's she just- was going to get to do. She's only 46 when she made this movie. It's kind of funny that in the movie she's playing someone who I think we see her 52nd birthday in this in the grandmother scene. Mm, at least. And so another birthday for a gal named Aurora Greenway. Even though 50, she still takes my breath away. Mere mortals just gaze as she lights up their sky. A heavenly object, a siren's cry. <laughs> You're the best. Happy birthday. Thank you. Do you want one for me? Do you like a kiss? 
You're not lying about your age, are you? Of course not. I thought you were 52. She's really 52. Come on, Aurora. How do you expect a fool a family doctor? It seems to me she said her age. Uh, my point is, the number doesn't matter, but the effort to conceal it does. Rosie, why does he keep talking? Dr. Ratcher. Damn it, I'm trying to do some good here. Now, the way to adjust to old age... A doctor. Doctor, I think you're a mite confused because of being recently witted and all. Maybe this is because I recently turned an age, which I may or may not be referencing, which might have two more years onto it than the one I just referenced. I don't want to say my age, but let's just say... Whatever age you are, you look great. It's not 46, let me put it that way. In the movie, 52 is presented as kind of like, well, it's over now. Yeah. Is that sort of like culturally maybe something that we thought more in 1991? than we do now, or 83? When did this movie come out? 83. 83? How old was James L. Brooks when he made it? Because Good I'm sure question. a lot of that is what your perception is. When you're what, 20... His, he had to be in his 40s, his mid-40s. See. see, he was born in 35? 1940. 40, okay. So he, he's, he's 43. He's 43. That's so, young. But it's close enough to be 52. It's not like, you know, you have ask a six-year-old, and they're yeah, like, 52 anyone, yeah. is grizzled Shirley old. Shirley MacLaine's physicality is just astounding, as is her ability to show the character's steeliness and the vulnerability that so obviously lies underneath it, especially towards the end of the movie when Deborah Winger's in the hospital. Spoiler alert, dying of cancer. <laughs> oh, gosh, did we not I ruined it sorry, for 1983's everybody. Terms of Endearment. Her roots are showing. The carefully put together person, has, has she's just stopped all that. She's who she really is underneath it all. The complexity. I think the Jim Brooks thing, when you look at the six or seven movies that he's made, more so his early TV work, not so much The Simpsons, which kind of dwarfs the whole conversation. His thing is always that emotional comedy. Mm -hmm. A sweetness, and unabashed sentimentality mixed with very, very sharp comedy. His ability to get that out of everybody in this movie is very impressive. I read the chapter of one of Shirley MacLaine's books that where she talks about the making of this movie. Uh -huh. It's a really, I almost wish I hadn't read it, not because she doesn't have anything insightful to say about the process, but because it's very much, of course, it's her book, only what she thought and experienced about yeah. herself through the whole process. You don't really learn much about anyone else except in glancing ways, things that make you think, probably the converse of what she's saying is actually true. Okay. You know when you read something like that, like a memoir? I had that I, feeling a couple I I, times. I read uh, Freakin's autobiography. Yes. Exactly the same time as Easy Rider's Raging yes. Bulls. And so there was so much overlap that I would hear the same story. The from, Polly Platt stuff, for example. Yes, That's exactly. the one I think of when I think of both of those books, is you read Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, you're like, Polly Platt, who, by the way, is a production designer of Terms yes. of Endearment, is one of the unsung most important people in the history of New Hollywood. And this guy fucking rode on these coattails and never gave proper credit. Then you read Friedkin's book, and she had nothing to do with anything. Some of the McClay, look, I love actors as much as I love to give you as the representative of all actors <laughs> a hard time about it. I'll take it for all of them. And I can understand that the nature of being an actor and being someone as famous as Shirley MacLaine was at this time who had been in the entertainment business since she was a child. It's a warping experience, I'm sure. I don't think that the 
difficulty in making the movie is as simple as Deborah Ringer was a loose cannon and hated Shirley MacLaine and made life really difficult for her. I agree with you 100%. Both of them have reputations. There's an element of sexism to it. Now, it's not just that both of them have been pitted against each other. People laugh at Shirley MacLaine because of her right. past live stuff. And Deborah Winger, it's not just with Shirley MacLaine, I forget. Officer and a Officer Gentleman. And a gentleman that she also, in quotes, was difficult and didn't get along with Richard Gere. There is a sexist thing against both of them and then pitting them against each other is even worse. But I don't know if you read this little anecdote about when uh, Deborah Winger, oh, sorry, excuse me. Sorry, you mean when Shirley uh, won Best Actress. And she said, half of this is yours. And Deborah Winger responded, I'll take I'll half. I'll take half. <laughs> Uh, which which I think is one of the rare instances they both tell the same anecdote. I did watch the portion of the Oscar telecast where Shirley MacLaine wins, and they were both nominated for Best Actress. When she wins, and when she's giving her speech, and when she's praising Deborah Winger, they cut away to Deborah Winger. She's laughing, kind of at Shirley MacLaine, okay. pretty obviously. So who knows? But when you're doing something creative like making a movie, I understand how... On a film set, we have actors, we have show people from the people that stand around all day and hold and manipulate lights and electrical cables. Directors have their own thing, the studio pressure, all that kind of stuff. It can be a hotbed. And ultimately, it's a crucible in which the only important thing can become, did we get it? You know, there's millions of stories of directors reducing people to tears. It's bringing them to the brink of suicide. I mean, horrible, horrible things. Abuse and mind fucking and making people feel less than or making them feel like doing whatever you have to do to get this batch of crazy crazy people to deliver what you can sit back in a theater later and go, oh, I got it. People themselves will have their own sensitivities. The thing that defines this movie and makes it so funny and moving and real is complexity. And of course, as trite as it sounds like, that's that's life in it. Like that's mm -hmm. the thing that amazed me about watching this is how it did capture that complexity. Every character felt well-defined, but becomes like family. None of them are loved unconditionally, but all of them are loved. Even when you recognize their faults, none of them are cast out. And they recognize each other's faults in a way that's kind of forgiving and feels still contemporary and modern. The way that Flap and Emma talk about their marriage or his failings as a husband, like it's free of the immediate emotional knee-jerk stuff that you see in other movies. She's still aware of the bond that ties them even when she's really disappointed and pissed off at him. Yeah. She can say that. And in the central conflict of the movie, the love between Emma and Aurora and the way that both of their egos clash, it's brilliantly represented in this clip. I got some good news. What's that? I'm unofficially pregnant. I mean, we haven't gotten the test back yet, but you know me, I'm never late. Well, now I don't understand. Um, if you're not happy for me, I'm gonna get so mad if you're not happy. <laughs> Why should I? Why should I be happy about being a grandmother? Does this mean you won't be knitting the baby any booties? <laughs> Flap. Every time you get more than two drinks in you, you confront me. And I won't have it. I won't have it, not in this house. Excuse me. It's an amazing scene. The way we're moving through emotional moments in that one scene is just amazing to me. 
Yeah. You have the heartfelt warmth of I'm pregnant, mom, and how joyous that is for her met instantaneously with the brilliantly comedic face of Shirley MacLaine, who says so much without saying anything just in that close up. And then she takes it to she's actually not fucking I was happy like, for them. And was, you're sort of like, what's going on? No way. And the way Emma gives voice to that and saying, like, I'm going to be so mad if you're not happy for me. And I think it's great. Shirley's thing at the end, taking all the focus back onto herself. Like, yeah. It doesn't feel Feel genuine when she stalks off and, and is lecturing Flap. Feels like she's throwing a tantrum in order to get what she wants. Mm-hmm. And it's just all in one one minute scene. Yeah. And that's, I think, the tone that James L. Brooks is able to bring to this whole movie. It's masterful. And it also fuels Aurora's genuine disappointment, like you said, her yes. self-centeredness. There's a line earlier when... Bo- <laughs> forgot about this until just now. At the beginning of the movie, Emma is about to get married the night before. Yes. Uh, that great scene where she's like, <laughs> she's like, would you want me to tell you if you, something that would destroy your life if you, if you knew it would only hurt a bit, something like that. You wouldn't want me to be silent about something that's for your own good, even if it might hurt a little, would you? Yes, ma'am, I certainly would. <laughs> And then she tests about flap. She says, you're just going to have kids and give up your career. Yeah. You know, something like that. Yeah. Which, you know, is an interesting or your life. thing. Or yeah. your life. Life, life. life as you know it will come to an end. If so you as we were getting to this, I thought that it would return to that. Mm. And it was fantastic that it didn't. Because yeah. you kind of realize, and again, this is not to say that she wasn't sincere and does not right. want her daughter hemmed in by society mm-hmm. in the same way that perhaps she feels she was. But it also <laughs> means that there's more going on than that. The fact that I get constantly upended and, and never on firm ground in a good way. Yes. It is truly funny, but you also realize that there's pathos underneath and vice versa. It's also not one of them's movie. Yeah. Like, it's as much Deborah Ringer's movie as it is Shirley MacLaine's movie. The scene you're talking about, well, over the course of the movie, Roar has proved right. Marrying Flap was a bad deal. Apparently in the book, we already know that about him. Okay. He, he had an affair with Patsy in the book that I think everyone is aware of. And before I read- Before they get married or Before sort of they early, get married. And apparently there's one visual reference to it where they're leaving. And Patsy says something like, to Flap- take care of your family. And he leans in like to have a, like a little whispered moment with her and he sees Aurora standing behind her and he straightens up. That was like a reference to the, to to the affair that he and Patsy had had, which again would be more of that complexity of life that like these characters sort of live in. If it were a movie just about the affair, if it were a movie just about yes. the cancer, all of those things might have felt smaller and trite. But the fact that we go from wanting her and Flap to be happy in the beginning to thinking Flap is a real jerk to mm-hmm. towards the end when she is in the hospital and there's, it's not a reconciliation the generosity she is show, that they are both showing toward each other yeah. of accepting that like you know we still love each other even though all these things have happened and one of us is about to die uh, the fact that it moves through all of that makes yeah. it just so much more Garrett Breedlove slash Jack Nicholson enters the film it's easy now to think of this and just know that it's a great Academy yeah. Award winning Jack Nicholson performance where he's not the male lead but we have to put it in context of the time when Nicholson was one of the biggest movie stars in the world and didn't really do roles like this where he's not the lead. He's only 48 or something when they made Mm -hmm. this movie. He is so freed, obviously, by not having to carry a whole movie that he steals pretty much everything that he's in. It's the perfect marriage of actor and role. And it's the perfect marriage in such a fascinating way with what we think we know about someone as an actor off screen represented in his on screen persona. And his ability to, I think, 
think, play with or take the piss out of oh. his own reputation. His own, like, he, you know, I don't know what the man's like, but he obviously has enough of a sense of humor about himself to just have an amazing performance. I want to play the first scene where you mentioned, you know, they have a couple scenes where she observes him <laughs> before he ever speaks to us in the film. You know, we observe him cavorting with women who are far too young for him, yeah. coming home drunk and trying to tip a garbage can full of empty bottles into another garbage can and miss it completely and dump them all out, even from afar, even from these shots that are that are shot across the way from Nicholson's house. He just embodies this louche, gone to seed, former somebody. This scene is is was one of the scenes where he, talk about backhanded compliments. They, yeah. It's hard to count how many there are in this short scene, which is uh, they're talking across the fence between uh, their two homes, and he's about to ask her out. Well, <clears throat> we're gonna have this uh, dinner at, uh, NASA dinner at the White House, and uh, you know, some cosmonauts and all of us, and uh, I didn't know who I could take, because all the people that I flew with, well, their wives would give me bitch bites all up and down my back if I showed up with one of my regular girls. <laughs> I didn't know anybody old enough, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll ask my next door neighbor. Well, and <clears throat> anyway, they canceled the dinner, but I was really thinking about asking you out seriously, and that a shocker. Huh? Yes. Imagine you having a date with someone where it wasn't necessarily a felony. Her physicality there, when she put, takes her hand and just puts it over her side as as she starts to understand what the hell's going on, yeah. is so fucking brilliant. And his voice control, just loving watching actors having so much fun, especially since, by all accounts, they weren't really having much fun making the movie. It's even more extraordinary then. The whole cast? Because I had uh, read a bit much. that, that I mean, James L. Brooks and the two leads yeah. were... There's an anecdote in Shirley MacLaine's book, which actually is telling in a way. She talks about Nicholson. This is James L. Brooks's first movie right. that he ever directed. So imagine your first fucking movie. You have Deborah Winger, who's coming off of Officer and a Gentleman. You have Shirley MacLaine. You have freaking Jack Nicholson. I mean, it sounds like Jim Brooks's working style was to kind of like get what he needed. And he has a very dark and sharp sense of humor, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. Shirley has a couple anecdotes in her book that involve him having to apologize to her for basically being extremely sarcastic. Ah. And so I think maybe she was such a live wire and so sort of emotionally present in this haywire kind of moment and trying to get this character right that she didn't appreciate some of the ways he went about what he was doing. She has an anecdote where Nicholson was ready to film the scene in his kitchen. It's just before they make love for the first time and his kitchen is a shrine to his astronaut career. Right. And uh -huh. she's like, I think this is so sad. So they were getting ready to film that scene and Nicholson was called to the set and sits down and, you know, a star of his stature. They're calling you to the set when they're ready to shoot you. But he was sitting there for quite a while. They didn't have their shit together. And he finally slammed his hand down on the table really loudly. And he said, come on, motherfuckers, let's go. And she said, everyone on the set like snapped into attention. And from that moment forward, they worked with efficiency and precision. Right. This scene, the looseness that they all are playing with. That's why it's so weird to read that some movies have famously troubled sets. 
But the two of them in this scene is a revelation. I mean, his devilry, as he refers to it later, her, like, just the cutaways, like, the way it's edited. The takes are long. Yeah. And that allows, you can see, you, the listeners, are not able to see, but when Jack Nicholson, like you said, his voice control, even <laughs> though he's the brash one, the devil is being yes. and he is definitely pushing her buttons deliberately, exerting power by being so audacious and crass, there is a little yes, bit of little shyness. Bit. But it's just enough to make it more fun and more exciting yeah. to be able to do that, and you wouldn't be able to see those if the scene were to be going back and forth yes, between the two. Yes, and the only cutaway that happens is after he sort of drops the first bomb of not knowing anyone old enough. There's no cutaway to her before that. It's all, like you're saying, that long take of his fumbling story, and it makes that simple cutaway to her and the movement of her hand <laughs> to her side so much more fucking hilarious. They are incredible together. I never get the sense reading her this part of her book. I don't know, maybe you've been in movies where there's a book that existed before the movie. Like, do actors read the book? Or do you Everybody not even works bother? about a different... Like, I guess it really depends on the kind of book. I would... I doubt... Oh, gosh, now you go back and forth. I mean, famously, like, the screenplay was really good. So maybe in that sense, like, you don't need to because if Jim Brooks hands you this funny, heartwarming, well-written, well-constructed screenplay and you just get it, then I guess you don't need to read Larry McMurtry's 1,200-page Though, on the other hand, I could also see being so fascinated by it. You know, you know, there was a sequel made to this, The Evening Star, which yes. I only saw that it was, in quotes, a critical and commercial failure. There's part of me that would like to see it because I do love these characters. And well, I find but no one's in it, though. Are well, they? I mean, uh, Shirley McLean's in it. I think Jack Nicholson is in it. Oh, really? Maybe it's a cameo. Who knows if I actually will. But it's a character piece. And I yeah. can see reading the script and being like, I am so fascinated. I just, not that I want to do more research, but I just want to live be with back in the world. Yeah. be back in the world. Um, well, Chris, I can help you with that because I'm going to play one of the famous scenes that takes place on their first date right now. Thank you. Well, I think that is extremely rude. Noticing other women when you're with me. I, um, think we're gonna have to get drunk. I don't get drunk, and I don't care for escorts who do. You got me into this, and I'm, you're just gonna have to trust me about this, this one thing. You need a lot of drinks. To break the ice. To kill the bug that you have up your ass. May I get you something? Yes, I think I will have some bird. Uh, preferably wild turkey. She's wearing the most ridiculous clothes. Uh, it's, yes. It's so good, man. I've seen this movie so many times, but this time, like I said, I was reminded just what a pleasure it is to watch acting at this level married with filmmaking at this level, Yeah, which is incredible that it's in Brooks's first movie. He has like, what, six movies? And I think three of them are pretty fucking good. I was really surprised at, at how few he had directed. Well, I mean, I think the TV thing just took yes. on such a huge thing. I think this and certainly Broadcast News, right. which is one of my favorite films and probably the greatest film ever made about working in the TV news business. Also has great small Nicholson role. That's an incredible movie to follow this one with. Then the famous debacle of I'll Do Anything, which mm -hmm. was a musical in which they took out all the songs, which is like a thing that happens about every 25 years in Hollywood, I feel like. They make a musical and then like the studio is like, what the fuck is this? Maybe if we strip out all the music, it'll make more sense for our viewers. That's what happened to this movie. Oh, I wonder if a cut of I'll Do Anything with the songs I don't think exists. it exists. And then he made a pretty good movie also with Nicholson, 
Um, as good as it gets. As good as it gets. I think it's a very good movie. Um, and I think Nicholson won an Academy Award for that as well. Yes. Uh, Spanglish and How Do You Know. Mm, I don't know. I haven't seen How Do You Know. I don't know. Every couple of years, people try to sell me on Adam Sandler as a dramatic actor. And Just a quick detour here into his TV work. This is a guy who created the Mary Tyler Moore show. He created Rhoda. He created Lou Grant. Those are all spinoffs from the Mary Tyler Moore show. He co-created right. Taxi. And let's just stop down because I need to have a taxi moment because that is a TV series. This was like so central and important to my young life. And I think it's because that mix of the earnest and the comedic was just so perfectly realized. This theme and open to taxi, it's iconic. Everyone knows that's the open to taxi. You could play the first three notes and everyone knows exactly what it is. But when you know the show, it's kind of weird. Like that's the open to a moody, meditative tone poem about existential grief and loneliness in as the big kid, city. That, that's what, <laughs> as a kid, when it would come on, it would it would confuse me because of that song, because the fact that it was filmed and yes. it looked so gritty and dark, like in the, the taxi place, it looked like it shouldn't be a comedy. And I have a very visceral feeling about that song too, though for me, it's the confusion of like, so that's what being a grown up is like. Mm -hmm. Urban, mournful, like kind of hip, but also kind of tired. Well, everybody's looking for something, you know? Yeah. They're looking for love, for connection in a world that's not right. So I was looking for this last night on YouTube. I was like scrolling through the comments of the taxi theme and I was blown away. <laughs> this guy, this is something this guy wrote, just some, just some dude on YouTube. He says of the taxi opening, this song always seemed to me to be optimistic, full of hope and possibilities belying the truth of a broken system and society. He ain't wrong. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and like, absolutely. And then like 45 people under that. Oh my God, so well said. That's so spot on. It's a show about a fucking taxi dispatch garage and the characters that occupy it. Yeah. Um, but that to me is the Jim Brooks thing. It's like, there's that, that broken hearted sweetness and emotionalism underneath everything. Yes. That's the thing that Taxi kind of really embodied. So he co-creates Taxi. He was the EP of the Tracy Ullman show. Now, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but someone says that at the end of the filming of Terms of Endearment, someone gave him like Akbar and Jeff or something. Uh, I think it was a hell book. Oh, yeah. Those non-Simpsons Matt Groening's books were amazing. Yeah. Akbar and Jeff. Hell. Anyway, the story goes, someone gave him that as like a rap gift. Yeah. And that when he was doing the Tracy Ullman show and they needed some animated segments, he hired Matt Groening to make some. And that's what 30 years later, we're still talking about The Simpsons. I love that. I hope, I hope that's, that's true. true. Yeah. <laughs> so broadcast news, which as I said, one of my favorite films, uh, Albert Brooks again, he produced Say Anything. Big, War of the Roses. And I didn't know this, that he produced Wes Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket, and was a mentor to Wes Anderson. Does he 
teach or something? Like how, I wonder how he got connected with Wes Anderson. But that just seems like such a nice thing. You know, he was obviously so established to take a young filmmaker like that. And again, it's not like he produced the thing after Bottle Rocket. Like he produced Bottle Rocket, the one that was like shot in the guy's hometown. Well, you know, it's funny when you think about Wes Anderson, he, he's also infused with that sort of comedic but wounded romanticism. And the same thing with Cameron Crowe and Say Anything. I think it's just birds of a feather and people flocking to sort of what Jim Brooks does. A lot of times when we're talking about people like a James L. Brooks who've had a presence in Hollywood for 30, 40, 50 years, what you're talking about is that they do that thing. Now, the pure comedy stuff like The Simpsons doesn't do that, but the stuff that he's personally done and touched always has that. To put those three together, that's really, I wouldn't have guessed that because I think of Wes Anderson's, the visual aesthetic is so particular to him and so different and distant and so almost polar opposite mm -hmm. to Terms of Endearment and to Taxi. And yet, when you put it that way, that it's it's about that mixture of comedy, but being well-observed and being soulful. Yeah, that that's a, that's a really interesting observation. I can see that. Thank you, Chris. Hey, you got it, man. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. There's an extraordinary scene between Nicholson and Aurora that I find so great. I think, aside from the very end of the film, it's the only time we see both Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine's characters completely honest with each other and themselves. And it's the scene after she has insulted his astronaut stuff. They're in bed and he is telling her what it was like to be in space. Yeah. Even though it's the most important moment of his life, having him be irreverent about being on the space shuttle and stuff, the way that it is written is so... The fact that he allows there to be some comedy. James Elbrook writes it in such a way that Garrett is not being overly pompous. You know, he's being sincere, he's being real, yeah. but it doesn't feel manipulative or like, yeah. oh, we're going to show you this other side of the character. No, it's just as Jen, he's still the same kind of mm -hmm. jerk. And yet you see that that can encompass some depth as well. Yeah. You want to know what bothers me? None of us ever got together in one room, locked all the doors and compared notes on the experience. I think there was a rule we had to pretend that it wasn't the fun that it was. <laughs> we do sense the speed. I remember looking out the window of the spacecraft. <laughs> God, I sound like somebody with a big belly telling the stories about Korea. Anyway, this one point I'm looking out the window, saying, I see a piece of the spacecraft and it's whistling along the ground. It doesn't make a sound sound you hear, the only noise in the entire world is your heart beating. It's indescribable. Or anyway, I can think of a better way of saying it, but that was it. That was my moment, the one that doesn't go away. You know what I mean? Hey. This is my 
<laughs> Get nervous, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great how Nicholson plays the end of that scene. Uh, absolutely, it's it, it's so. Um, and she doesn't back off. She doesn't back genuinely. off. She's like, "Don't get nervous." Like he, I said it because it's because I feel it. He he, pr- he, it. he brings like his pinky to his mouth and and look and it's shot very. It's very dark. Yeah, but you can just feel his face. He's he's getting nervous. There's attachment. There's emotional vulnerabilities taking place. He starts shutting down and she calls him on it. The genuineness with which he plays that scene and the, with the way she does it, uh, it's heartbreakingly vulnerable. And yes. she's making herself so available and there to him in the moment. It's incredible. Such a good scene. And it's a good contrast to the first night. You know, you had mentioned the, uh, <laughs> the phone call scene, but then when they actually are in the room, there's another long take of them on either side of the bed as they're sort of stripping. And he and she... <laughs> asks him to turn off the light. Yeah. Or maybe uh, she turns off the light and he says, I like the lights on. Then go home and turn them on. Yeah, it's a great moment of how difficult it is for them both to be just real with each other. Yes. And how nervous they both kind of are. Even though they are, you know, what now doesn't look as advanced, but I think it's played as, you know, they're at sort of an advanced age. They still have this... A, yes. a childish, cultish uh, vulnerability yes. to them. Because well, we have to play this a little bit. This is the just the great scene where she calls him up and invites him over. Hello? Hello, Garrett? Yes? Well, I was just sitting here realizing, realizing that I had never shown you my Renoir. What are you talking about? I'm inviting you to come over and look at my Renoir. You're inviting me to bed. Yes, it happens to be in my bedroom. Is the Renoir under the covers? <laughs> Don't cackle, Karen. Do you want to see it? Do you want to come to your bedroom? Well, let me think. Uh, Do you? Just, just, just give me a minute. It's, it's a tough one. Um... I can't. Yeah, okay. Uh, I guess so. Sure, why not? Right, I'll see you in a bit. Uh, now, if I don't answer the bell, that means that the back door is open. The back door is open. Oh, my God. I could just oh. watch the two of them forever just Absolutely. bantering. His prevarication is just... It's so cruel. It's so cruel. The cutaways to her just taking it. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, it's very... It's so sweet. And I guess it's the kind of... To see not just two seasoned professional actors, but also the fact that it's written about older people. Like, yeah. They are tougher. They're more <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of more interesting. Than, and maybe it's just because I'm getting older. Well, they're more aware they got to put it out there. Ex- yeah, exactly. So you just, there are just that many more layers. I think the scene later that is also played so well between the two. And, you know, I don't want to give short shrift to all the other incredible scenes that go on in there. But this breakup scene between Garrett and Aurora is so well done. Probably know what I want to say. Oh, maybe not. I hope not. Well, you're some kind of woman. But I'm the wrong kind of man, and it doesn't look like my shot at being the right kind is 
I wonder in that scene, in that pause, it's like the wind and the chimes come up just for a bit, which has to be an editing choice. I would Mm -hmm. guess it would be too much to presume that in the actual moment, Mother Nature sort of dramatically swelled up. But it's just kind of that masterful control of the scene. Simple scene, shot head on for starters with just simple close-ups cutting between the two of them. And it's short. It's short. So much happens to it and it happens in it and yet it's short. Wonderful writing. It was a little sad watching this now because I'm aware that like Jack Nicholson is I think 84 or something or 82. And I'm not really sure that we're going to see him much more on the screen. I think he has something that's coming up. I was surprised to see uh, how long it's been since his last. It's been a long time. So he's 81 according to, you know, Hollywood aging. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, his last credit is 2010. Yeah, That was How Do You Know? No, but I thought he was in something that was coming out, uh, but maybe not. You know, maybe he's retired. It's just a little wistful to watch him be so amazing in this. And just the kind of movie star that we really don't have anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't really make a lot of these. Have Um, you seen anything he's directed? Sure. I mean, it's only four. I knew he had done The Two Jakes, but I thought that was it. Yeah, he directed The Two Jakes, which, you know, is a... As far as unnecessary sequels to (laughs) beloved movies go, it's not the worst one I can think of. But it's not a terrible sequel to Chinatown. What made me think about it was just reading about Going South, because that was just like a video box cover that I would see like at the video store and be like, the hell is this? But then reading about (laughs) it, it sounds pretty interesting. And I was also surprised. I mean, I guess I kind of would have if you had asked how many Westerns he was, how how long his career was and how much of it was Westerns before he broke through. And, you know, it's been a while since that was. Because I think of him, you know, as as not only uh, Jack in The Shining and mm-hmm. Jack in Batman, yep. but uh, just sort of a much more urban, malevolent pre- as opposed to a cowboy. Well, he had a long career in television and all that yeah. before he became kind of that countercultural movie star and lived as the defining rogue of that era. Right. Um, and even his role in um, uh, Easy Rider. Sure. Yeah, he's not the... He's the nerd. He's He's not... square. He's the square. He's the square. We would be remiss not to just give a brief shout out to the three days that John Lithgow (laughs) spent on set in what was really sort of an otherwise kind of thankless role. We're playing a lot of clips here, so hopefully you can make it all work with the ones that work best in our conversation. But this scene between him and Emma, before they've taken the step that they're about to take in their adulterous relationship. Emma... I haven't made love to a woman in almost three years. How come? My wife has a disc problem. And she can't take having 
any weight on her. Sam, I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but have you ever thought of, of your wife getting on, on top? Oh, she wouldn't do that. She may surprise you. No, I don't think so. It would be so unlike her. Did you ask? About 600 times. <laughs> Not only the genuine warmth and decency of Emma as embodied by Deborah Winger, yeah. but his brilliant facial takes so good and filmed on a three-day hiatus. Footloose. From Footloose. You know what I could not <laughs> find? So he was called in to replace an actor who Right, I couldn't find working. who it was. The, the secret has been buried. secret in Hollywood. I didn't even find any rumors. Oh, speaking of which, this was like a thunderbolt from heaven as I watched this movie the other night. John Lithgow, Chris Kapiniak. Same. How did I never put this together before? At his age here, which is he's younger than you in this movie. I'm sure. You guys are very similar. You have a very, you, is this a thing in your career that I you've have been described as Lithgow-esque? Not career-wise, but by people I personally have, have said. Like, it's never very like similar. It's very similar. I can see it. I think what it is, I, I wrote a note here, which I thought I captured it very perfectly. Lithgow has that thing where his geniality can either be so pure and decent that it's like heartbreaking, like in that scene, or he can also just be pure evil. Yeah. That's very like you. <laughs> Got them both. No, that's not like you at all. But that that is what I think the Lithgow-ness, why is that something that can play both ways? Well, with him specifically, you know, he's got like this, in the scene that you would just play, there's the point where he's trying to remember how long it's yes. been and his eyes go, his like eyes. His, his face is so round, so almost cartoonish, and yet he invests it with truth. So I think that helps. Also, similar, not to change the subject, I kept reading about how people would describe Deborah Winger's face as being so expressive. Mm. You can just see everything that she is doing, though in, in her case, it's not as cartoonish. But I think that's that's the thing with John Lithgow. Because he looks sort of cartoonish when he's playing a joke straight or dry, mm -hmm. Yeah, the comedy is sort of done. Hopefully I have some of that too. Maybe that's that's what it is. Very similar. Uh, you could be cast as Lithgow's son in something. Gosh, I so hope they do it. I think you Once should he wraps you. Hillary and Clinton uh, on Broadway. Oh, uh, yeah. I want to see that. I'm sure you do. Have you seen it? Uh, Lucas Anoth, I know, is very, I, yes, famously very brilliant. Good. I just, I'm not interested in seeing anything about the Clintons, not out of any political thing. I'm just done. You mentioned Deborah Winger's face. Like, man, just even in that scene at the diner, the control of her face and the delivery of the lines, it's like, I can feel silly sometimes, like talking in this granular detail about how amazing actors can be and to do it and be funny and to do it and be with the other person in an unnatural environment with all those people standing around you and playing these very personal moments. Like the scene with Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine in bed in this yeah. vulnerable, dark lit moment. Like there's 65 people surrounding them and they have to do it probably 30, 40 times. Yeah. So I, when I look at the movie like this, assembled this way and her raise of eyebrows, her surprise, her reaction to him saying he hasn't had sex with a woman in three years. Like it's truly incredible. And maybe it just is like capturing something that she was and that she would do naturally. And it's not really so thought out. I think a lot of actors would say that that's really what you want. You want it to be touching something real in you and sort of reacting in the real way. And yet there is still an element of control to that too, because you still have to say the lines. You have to look where you're going to look. It can be a real difficult balancing act between, I'm trying to think of a better word than vessel, but like being the vessel 
muscles so that all of that sensitivity and true feeling can go as crazy as mm-hmm. it wants, and yet within something contained enough that you don't blow all the takes and that you don't yeah. miss your marks. Yeah. Going back to how tough it can be on a set, I remember listening to an interview with somebody who I think was an agent. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, like, you know, I really do love, and I think they said artists in general, but I think was yeah. particularly talking about actors, is like, it's a tough thing. The whole thing you're being asked to do is to be vulnerable and open <laughs> yeah. and sensitive. It can be easy to laugh at some of the mm-hmm. demands or things that seem like diva behavior. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, what you're asking is people to be able to yeah. go to their deepest parts yeah. almost on a dime. So yeah. like, it's understandable that you'd want the conditions to be yeah. set in such a way as to make that possible, yeah. which I thought was I thought was very perceptive. And I think that that's, that's true. Well, it also speaks to Deborah Winger because, you know, and this, this gets back into like the sexism with which we or the rap on someone is she's difficult. And she had that rap through this era of her career. You know, I read some things that said like when she was making this movie, she had been struggling with a drug problem. I don't know if that's true or not. She certainly doesn't seem it in the movie. Like she seems extremely present. When we did Working Girl, like I I think you could kind of see what Melanie Griffith has been open about that she was having drug and alcohol problems during the making of the film. I think that's visible on screen in that movie. There's certainly nothing visible on screen in this Mm -hmm. movie. And I wish it's unavailable on streaming. I remember seeing it a bunch of years ago, the documentary Searching for Deborah Winger, which Patricia Arquette made, which is interviewing all who's who of Hollywood actresses. And it's kind of about Deborah Winger's famous decision, I think in 94 or so, to sort of step away from Hollywood and just concentrate on raising her family. So she's talked a bunch about the perception of her difficulty. She had an interesting quote that was sort of like, you know, it was never about the size of my trailer, like it is for some actors. You know, it's not about like, are you valuing me by giving me the biggest trailer on the lot? She was like, it was always about the work. And you could feel that in delivering these pretty fucking amazing film performances, Mm -hmm. they're very unique. And she's a very unique screen presence, a contradiction of steel and vulnerability and comedy that you don't really find in a lot of actors. Anyway, the difficulty, I mean, God, who wouldn't be, you probably have to be difficult at times to stand up for something if you care. Like you can either probably very early on choose not to care and just be like, whatever you want to do, I'm cool. There's I'm, less of yourself at risk, so it's easy to be like, sure, but if you guys want to make me wait or whatever, you're fine, whatever, what yeah. do I care? I'll be sitting here reading because you're not as engaged and not as plugged in. So you have this famous feud between her and Shirley MacLaine and it, there's enough of it. Jim Brooks has a great quote. No one can get a fix on the relationship, not even the participants. I thought that really says it all. That's a polite way of saying, as a director, I'm not going to say anything bad about my leading ladies. Yeah. But they were both fucking crazy on set. And they probably were. And he probably made it difficult for them. He certainly made it difficult for Shirley MacLaine and her right. telling. That could have been all like really brilliant jujitsu to get her in that place of frightened vulnerability. I don't know. Like you said, he was a first time director, which, uh, yeah. you know, that kind of behavior certainly in the Me Too era, without even talking about sexual harassment, yeah. talking about just sort of the manipulation and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, it's, you know, it's frowned upon now, which is completely understandable and completely right. And yet at the same time, there is some part of it that does go to produce great work. I mean, this is a collaborative thing and hopefully adults are going into it knowing what they can take, what they can do. And yet at the same time, as a first time director, it would not surprise me at all if he tried to do something that he thought was in service of it, but went too far or was not able to calibrate or gauge. Because again, 
everybody around is, are these seasoned professionals and these amazing actors. And as much as he was a producer, as much as he had been on all of on a television set, it is a different beast to run the whole thing and to work with actors that closely. So one one anecdote that McLean and Winger do agree on is there was a time when Deborah Winger was calling Shirley McLean over and saying, "Here's your mark," and Shirley McLean said. <laughs> In so many words, I've been doing this since I was a child. I know how to hit a mark. Deborah Winger said, good. How's this for a mark? Turned around, lifted her skirt, looked at Shirley MacLaine over her shoulder and farted <laughs> in her direction. <laughs> um, which Deborah Winger just says like, yeah, that sounds like something I might have done. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I can neither confirm nor deny. She says Nicholson gave her some good advice. She says, as Nicholson so richly told me years and years ago, don't deny anything. Because if you deny one thing, the first thing you don't deny yeah. is then automatically true. So she doesn't deny anything. And it just this came up actually not so long ago where she was on Watch What Happens Live. Is that Andy yeah. Cohen? Andy Cohen show. And he asked her about this all over again. You know, they was said this. And she got a little testy about it. And again, it's one of those things. It's like you can look at the clip online and the clip will be presented as like Deborah Winger is difficult on Watch What Happens Live. But she's not being difficult. She's just saying like, dude. It's also enough is enough. <laughs> 1983, and you're asking me about this now. Yeah. Why are we so fascinated? I just think it's so weird. Yeah. And when in fact, you know, you and I both know, it's like everything that you can read about, every famous feud, there's thousands of things far worse that you never hear about. Yes. That go on all the time with people you think you love. Like J the guy Jimmy Stewart killed. That's Chris. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Maybe that's a good segue to our new segment of alternative casting. Put that one back. I like what Matt came up with, which people have probably heard now. Yeah. Um, there's some good ones. I was surprised. I yes. At first, I was kind of like, hey, you know what? We didn't get much alternative casting information, but man, there are some juicy, juicy ones. The first starting point would be, of course, with Garrett Breedlove and Jim Brooks writing part of the astronaut, which does not exist in Larry McMurtry's book. Yes. He created the character. There was a similar character, yeah, except he was a general. Yes. And so Jim Brooks had offered the part of retired astronaut Garrett Breedlove to Burt Reynolds, who turned it down to do Stroker Ace. And apparently because- Which next week we'll be talking <laughs> we'll about. Be you know? talking. <laughs> apparently Reynolds balked at the, because of his vanity. The way he put it in an interview with Larry King was, there are no awards in Hollywood for being an idiot. Yes. <laughs> Which- uh, McLean in her book has a very funny moment where she's like, Bert refused to work without his toupee and he was not interested in putting on the weight to play the paunchy right. astronaut. And even Nicholson wasn't sure about it, they say, because he has a lot of time with the big belly that he references yeah. in that scene. It's not even that big. But yeah, for a movie star, a man. Movie star, you know, let's see you walk around with your belly hanging out on a film set in front of millions yeah, of people. Yeah, but mine is that big. I mean, it's not good. We just did a movie where Burt Reynolds wasn't in it because he turned it down. <laughs> Zardoz. I was Zardoz, yeah. <laughs> now, that when he read the script, so, this one he didn't. Listen, dodge one bullet. <laughs> and again, uh, it's hard. I mean, I know it's impossible to think of anyone as Garrett Breedlove. I guess I could see Burt Reynolds. It's, it's weird. It's like the problem that we had with Burt Reynolds being in Zardoz, where if he doesn't read smart enough. But in both cases, it's a pretty interesting triangulation to see the similarity that Sean Connery, yes. Burt Reynolds, and, <laughs> and Jack Nicholson have to triangulate them. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Sort of a subtle misogyny. Right. Is that, is that <laughs> what you're going for delicately? Well, I was going to say, you know, a kind of uh, unselfconscious masculinity, which is what that's all nice that Zardoz is about. But yeah, no, you should be a director. <laughs> no one can triangulate that relationship, including the participants, said Chris. Uh, Paul Newman and Harrison Ford, apparently. Yes. And uh, Rockford and, and James, James Garner. Garner. 
And in all three cases, I wonder how, you know, because oftentimes there's almost a pro forma. Again, it might have been sure. the same interview. Tom Cruise, every- Yeah, they get everything, every, every script. Yeah, every yeah. script. It is, he's at first guy. Yeah. So it could have been a similar thing with Paul Newman and, and Harrison Ford. James Garner, I don't think he was that huge that it would no, be the same pro forma. But, but, you know, he certainly could have fit that bill. I didn't know this, that Deborah Winger was cast in the Gina Davis role in A League of Their Own. Oh, yes. But backed out. And a rumor, and again, more like sexist innuendo in Hollywood, rumored that she did not want to work with Madonna. Yeah. Like, what What a stupid rumor. She would have been good in A League of Their Own. I think she would have been fantastic. Even my, Gina Davis was great. She and Lori Petty do share something that I yes, wonder. And do. I don't know if that would have been good because they're sisters or if it would have been made them too similar. Well, Lori Petty and Gina Davis also share a certain quirky peculiarity that worked. But I think yes. you're right that, they, that Deborah and Lori would have probably felt a little bit more like sisters. Well, if it hadn't been Deborah Winger... <laughs> Sissy Spacek and Jodie Foster were the two names that I yeah. saw. Jodie Foster turned it down because she had to graduate from Yale. Stay in school, kids. Pretty good reason to graduate. Yeah, I suppose. Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis were considered real life mother daughter. Do you see? You've seen Wild at Heart, of course. Of course. Which has Laura Dern and her real life mother. Yes. I do God. like stuff like that. That's the um, insane lipstick scene. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, who's Laura Dern's mother? Diane Ladd. Diane Ladd, yes. Well, did you read about the process that this whole project took, that originally Jennifer Jones yes. owned the rights to the book and wanted to play the part of Aurora? Not January Jones. Not January Jones, not Jessica Jones. Hollywood legend Jennifer Jones. She wanted to play Aurora, and it would have been Sissy Spacek. Oh, right. She commissioned James L. Brooks to do the script, and by the end, he's he like, like, I think I'll write this myself. Sort of like, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, it's uh, like hiring someone to pay your house, and then they're like, you know what? I actually want to buy the house from exactly. you. Well, but he did buy it from her, yeah. so <laughs> it's better than just sort of moving in without it. And apparently when uh, accepting the Oscar, he did he thank did her. He did thank her. Which He's is, a class act. Did you know that- Shirley MacLaine is involved. Did you know that Shirley MacLaine turned down Poltergeist to do Terms of Endearment? That's interesting. That is interesting. Well, you know what makes it even more interesting? The woman who took that role, Beatrice Strait- Yes. Played Hippolyta- Wonder Woman's mother in the Wonder Woman TV series. Which where, Deborah Winger was on. As Wonder Girl, Wonder Woman's sister. So therefore, she had already played Deborah Winger's mother. Awesome. Not in the Good same connection. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Also, the part of Patsy was offered to Kim Bassinger. Yeah. I, I think this was in Shirley MacLaine's book. There's a hilarious anecdote where like, she says that she and Jim Brooks called Kim Bassinger to get her to do it. They didn't go to her agent. And Kim Bassinger was like really upset, like as if I can't say no if you call me. Don't put me in that position to turn it down. But she had to turn it down and she turned it down to make The Man Who Loved Women starring Burt Reynolds. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, I wonder a if they were trading stories. A thankless role. But, you know, she's sort of right in the set. Like, that's what agents do, you know, yeah. to take that yeah, kind they're of they're to take that call. Look, I think what's weird, and it's always weird whenever we talk about alternative casting, is you realize, like, however much you or I or anyone can say, like, oh, wow, yeah. James Brooks, you know, he made this movie. He wrote it. He directed it. It's like, yeah, but how many things totally out of his control- totally ended up going so right that could just as easily have ended up going so wrong. Absolutely. So it's just a crapshoot. This is one of the things you're probably going to cut out because it's going to take far too long to explain. <laughs> but Terms of Endearment is one of only five films to receive two Academy Award nominations for Best Actress. Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger in this case. The other three, three and plus one is only four. Yeah. Wikipedia let me down. <laughs> Sons of bitches. Okay. So that's not when you let everybody edit. 
So All About Eve and Baxter mm-hmm. and Betty Davis, suddenly last summer, 1959, Catherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor, Turning Point, 77, Shirley MacLaine again and Anne Bancroft both nominated, and Thelma and Louise, 1991. Gina oh, wow. Davis and Susan Sarandon both nominated. And of all of those actresses, Shirley MacLaine's the only one to win an Academy Award for Best Actress for the relevant performance. Wow. So in every other example where... Both lead actresses were both nominated for Best Actress. None of them won. Deborah Winger had a funny story about Shirley MacLaine, I guess, like that little moment at the Academy Awards. Shirley MacLaine famously referenced the turbulent brilliance of Deborah Winger, is what she said. That's the moment where you they cut away to Deborah Winger, and she's laughing at what was just said on stage. Yeah. Apparently, the next day, Shirley heard that Deborah was rattled and sent her a T-shirt that said, Turbulent means brilliant. <laughs> To which Deborah Winger said, oh, give me a break. If it needs an explanation, don't say it. The lack of vanity that she willingly brings to the final moments are is just astounding. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. I guess as I look at the clips that I selected, I, I, I selected so many clips of her and Nicholson because I just think them together is is so watchable and so amazing. I get heavily choked and cry every time I watch this movie. One of the moments that always gets me is the way that Jack Nicholson says her name when he reappears. It's actually right after the give my daughter the shot scene. I don't know why. Maybe you can explain it to me after we play it here. Hi, Granny. Hi, Granny. Laura? Why is it incredible? I know I know exactly why. Do you know when he says, just the way he said, Aurora? Why does that get me every time? Because he is so vulnerable. Just like the vulnerable one word open. pronunciation that embodies vulnerability somehow? Because he is <laughs> so incredible. tentative because you don't <laughs> expect it. I also was chilled by that because I didn't think he would come back. It was the surprise and the way he says it is so, he knows he hurt her, but he still cares enough to want to be there for her, but he can't quite tell if it's- One fucking word, he does all that. Not, yeah. It's amazing. Let alone his physicality, which he has such physical control over his mannerisms. But man, that one fucking word. You know, it's also, it's it's the only time we hear him be that vulnerable. Yeah. Even in the scene when they're in bed, yeah. he has a sense of- Humor sure. about it. This is yes. there is nothing else except for well, and this is where the movie is also true about cancer, about the end of life, about the way in which death causes us to be stripped of a lot of the bullshit that we surround ourselves with in everyday life. The movie kind of hurdles towards this moment. She's about to die and everybody knows it. And yet the scenes are about how they're all handling it. Yeah. And this scene between Aurora and Garrett is so poignant and is set up so hilariously when she's walking on the pool and the little kids want to play with her and splash her. And she's like, let's get her. Don't you dare. The kids are great. And Danny DeVito standing in the back. We haven't mentioned him. I but didn't, I <laughs> Aurora has these suitors that are around her the whole time that are just falling over themselves in love with her. And even once she starts seeing Garrett, they're still around. They're all still around. <laughs> they're all still part of the I think it's so fantastic. 
I was reminded of other things watching the end of the movie too. Like the death scene is handled so differently and so well, the actual death, like all of the emotion takes place before it. So the scene with her saying goodbye to the boys. I love that. Oh so, my God. So much. Oof. Tommy, be sweet. Be sweet. And stop trying to pretend like you hate me. I mean, it's silly. I like you. Okay, then will you listen especially close? What? You listen real hard? I said what? I know you like me. I know it. For the last year or two, you've been pretending like you hate me. I love you very much. I love you as much as I love anybody. As much as I love myself. And in a few years, when I haven't been around to be on your tail about something or irritating you, you're gonna remember. You're gonna remember that time that I bought you the baseball glove when you thought we were too broke. You know? Or when I, I read you those stories. Or when I, I let you goof off instead of mowing the lawn. Lots of things like that. And you're gonna realize that you love me. And maybe you're gonna feel badly because you never told me. But don't. I know that you love me. So don't ever do that to yourself, all right? Okay. Okay? You said okay. That's a slayer right there, man. Yeah. In the same way that the boys, you see, they want to play with the grandmother splasher. Yes. She's not having it. Yeah. And you can see the confusion and disappointment and you understand their reaction. You understand her reaction. So too, when she's saying goodbye to them and the older son is being difficult. And of course, and the little friggin' angel, whose name is- Huckleberry Fox. Huckleberry Fox. Yeah. Not because New Haven's Huckleberry own. Hound. His family grew up in New Haven. You know, you don't hold it against the mm -hmm. older kid because it's been building this whole film. It's Troy building. Bishop it's plays Tommy, and man, he, he gives a really important performance in the movie and embodies that young male pre-adolescent conundrum of, of strongly held emotions towards your mother, whom he's so dependent upon and rejecting of yes. out of the sheer weight of his need for her and dependence on her. Whereas Teddy is just, is adorable and feels his feelings. Her goodbye scenes with the two boys are very realistic. They're not overdone. It's not perfect. Not everything gets said. And in that manner, it resists the cheapness that it yeah. could have been imbued with. And the way they handled her actual death, I thought was so interesting in that it's nonverbal. Flap and Aurora are asleep in chairs and Aurora wakes up and Emma wakes up at the same moment and they have a wordless connection just before she slips away. And then Aurora's breaking down this barrier between her and Flap, which never happens in the entire movie until that moment. They have sort of an icy scene at the cafeteria. Yes. But this scene in the aftermath of Emma's passing, she just sobs in his arms. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so well done. The other clip that I live and die for is the scene between Nicholson and Tommy at the end. Tommy has an awkward moment with his father at the sort of gathering at Aurora's. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know how they got this to occur, mm -hmm. but this scene is almost the thing I think of first when I think of Jack Nicholson's career. Mm -hmm. I understand you're a swimmer. Too. But you're an astronaut, right? An astronaut and a swimmer.
the end of the movie. There's something so perfect about the way Tommy plays that scene. He's so curious about Garrett Breedlove. This little kid plays that so well. And Nicholson's decency and humanity and his stepping up to preoccupy this kid, take his mind off it. The way he handles that scene is as impressive as any scene where he's opposite an adult actor. You can cut anything else that we ever talked about. Just don't cut that. This whole scene. The whole scene. The whole movie is about this community. All of these people, the fact that they are all still here. And even when Flap is starting to cry, the music is not mournful. It is getting to death being a part of life. Mm -hmm. The messiness of it. All of the interactions here are strange and messy. Even like when Garrett is talking to the boy. They fumble around together the way that Patsy and Aurora are dealing with the kids and and the kids moving between one person and another and Flap needing somebody. And the fact that Danny DeVito is still there. (laughs) The fact that that these suitors are still sort of around. Houston Texan Danny DeVito. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, that's to me, like the comment you had read from YouTube, I came across a comment on IMDb when some user, jlvogel at comcast.net, has a little paragraph sort of with the story. And the final line he has is, in the end, different people show their love in very different ways. And I found that very moving because all of the mistakes people are making. It's their way. It's their attempt to say, I love you to everybody else and end up pushing them away by accident. In the music, which was written by Michael Gore. He's Leslie Gore's brother. She's like a huge star from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Speaking of weird TV series cameos, she played, she was like a sidekick of Catwoman on the 60s Batman Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Michael Gore composed the perfect theme, which is really the only piece of music in this entire movie in different tempos and emotional ranges. So in looking him up, he also wrote this. No film has ever truly captured the New York experience (laughs) the way that fame has. Michael Gore wrote Fame, the song. Pretty good claim to fame. (laughs) Any final notes? Uh, I mean, there's a lot. I do think it's a testament to how undeniable this film was when it came out. 11 nominations, five wins. Jim Brooks won three himself. It's as close to perfect. It really is. I mean, as far as a piece of filmed entertainment goes, except if you're looking for any diversity. That's true. Yeah. You know, and also we haven't even gotten into Polly Platt because it does look beautiful. Polly all Platt's of these, production design is incredible. And she it's, was the, I guess, the executive director of Gracie Films Gracie at Films. the time, yeah. which is James O. Brooks. Yeah. So Jim Brooks knew who the power was. Yeah. You people, you all have access to the same Google. Sorry, it was Bogdanovich. I want to correct the record. It was Bogdanovich that was uncharitable. Yes. Not. Friedkin. I mean, I'm sure Friedkin was uncharitable. <laughs> well, she wasn't As married was to everyone, but she, she wasn't, wasn't married, married to Billy yes, Friedkin. Yes. She was married to Peter Bogdanovich. Yes. 
We're going to do mask. Sorry, Ted Jessup, if you're listening, we're not waiting for you. <laughs> you had your chance. Which Peter Bogdanovich directed, and he's kind of an uncharitable guy. Yes. Uh, which is so weird for someone who spends so much of his career now singing the praises of other people. That's probably why. Yeah, I guess Since so. Since he wasn't charitable I'm like, before, Gee, what instead of making that? his own thing. Well, it's not like he's making up for it. I mean, he doesn't apologize to her. No, it's, it's all he's got left to make <laughs> a true. career out of. Yeah, I guess so. The goodbye scene at the airport between Garrett yes. Breedlove and Aurora where he, he talked about using your persona to great effect, where she says, I love you. And he, and he walks through the doors and she lets it go and starts to walk across the tarmac. And then she can't help herself. She comes back, Garrett, did you have any reaction at all to me telling you I loved you? Almost um, made it with missed, a clean missed, getaway. Missed a clean getaway by that much or something? <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. And he gives this amazing pause and look, and then he says, I don't know what to say except my stock answer. I love you too, kid. And he flashes that grin and just. I mean, um, I have you know great what? scene. I have to correct the record. I did. I think I cried. You at cried that. then. You know, yeah, you know what Interesting. it is. Interesting. I did not expect. I was prepared for the cancer death. That's why I wasn't going to cry. Yeah. For that. But that I, I didn't expect. And his, I don't know. You know, speaking as a bachelor, you know, his maturing, mm-hmm. his ability to recognize that yeah. he loves her, even if, because I'm not even necessarily sure if it stays romantic after that. Well, is he recognizing is, that she's capable of it and he's kind of not? He loves her in the sense that he, he is there for her yes. and all of those things. Yes. And I, that, that's what I meant, that he recognizes that there is still a kind of love there that he can give to her. He kind of loves her in the either. important way, but he can't really love her in the committed way. Yes. This scene is just prior to the scene we played where he has the scene with Tommy in the backyard right. where you're kind of letting him off the hook for being the rogue that he is or being the emotional infant that he is. So he's sort of emotionally unavailable to Shirley MacLaine, but he's able to understand what he needs to do with Tommy. Yes. Okay, let's do Rants and Raves. <laughs> I have a rave that will overlap with a story that you might find interesting. This weekend, I went to MochaFest, which is the Museum of Comic and Cartoon Arts Convention for independent comic book people. I'm already on dangerous ground with Daryl Taylor as you start. I listened to an artist, this guy, Bill Sienkiewicz. Sure. He was in conversation with Klaus Janssen. Bill Sienkiewicz is a amazing contemporary comic book artist of the highest regard. Yes. When he was there, he was talking about how he used to live in the area of Westport, Connecticut, and how many writers and artists lived there. And it was, you know, I loved hearing him talk about his art, but I've read about that stuff. Mm -hmm. But when he was talking about this kind of um, almost artist colony of this Mm -hmm. section of Connecticut, where all of these people were, and he was saying like, you know, you'd be uh, complaining about the price of eggs with Joanne Woodward and stuff like that. Sure. And so he had a studio, an art studio in the same building with some theater. Mm -hmm. And because he was there a lot, I guess they offered him a ticket to their fundraiser. And he was, he is notorious for being very dedicated in his studio and working and stuff like that. But he goes out to get some air from his studio and is coming downstairs, realizing it's the same day as this thing and has his ticket. And he's in sweats, covered (laughs) in in paint paint and ink. And, you know, just sort of go through all of these uh, people in black tie because mm-hmm. it's not a huge theater, but it's big enough people with black tie. And somebody's like, ticket, please. And uh, he looks and it's uh, Kier DeLay was, oh. t- was taking this, the ticket. This is probably the Westport Country Playhouse. Like a Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward. Exactly, yes. And so he Kier <laughs> DeLay taking the ticket. He was just very surprised. You know, he didn't really <laughs> mind being with all the tuxedos. But then when actually confronted by Kier DeLay, he was like, ah. Are you opening the door to me 
breaking out all of the 2001 books I mean, they're, that I have they're right sitting there in front of us. I mean, if you want to get into some, <laughs> I have, I mean, I can look up, I can tell you some things about the costuming. If you, you yeah. to hear, I have. So the rave was just, his work is amazing. Yes. If you look at his uh, run, particularly on Moon Knight, it's a 38 issue. That Which I would be wrong to characterize as DC's ripoff of Batman, because as you educated me, Chris, it existed before Batman. Uh, that's everything, almost everything you said is wrong. One, it would have been Marvel's Not ripoff of Batman. <laughs> and two, no, Moon Knight uh, was created uh, oh. in the, uh, but you see his artwork change a yeah. lot over the course of it, which is awesome. And yeah, it sounded like that would have been an exciting place to live. In Connecticut, you know, Westport is kind of like Greenwich. It's considered the snooty rich person's town. But of course, in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, and up through the 90s, it also was a place where people who maybe lived and worked in the theater or film community was more of like a, a bedroom community for that. And it had more of a kind of a charm to it, even though it was some of the upper classness going on. Whereas now they're famously knocking down all those sort of quaint homes that used to be there. And now it's all the hedge fund people putting up all the McMansions. So yeah. goodbye, so Westport, go. Connecticut. Goodbye, Westport, Connecticut. That's a great one, Chris. Thank you. I do have, uh, I guess, a rant. Catholic priest apologizes for burning Harry Potter books at cemetery. That sounds Poland, like a headline. But it's not an entertainment news headline. Well, you're confusing Matt now. Is he supposed to play the headlines theme or is this still a rant? I, mean, I identified it as a rage. I think of this. You rage. think yeah. you're supporting the burning <laughs> I love of books. books. <laughs> yes. wow. I identified it as a rant. All that I wanted to say was this Catholic priest, I don't know if you had heard about this, was yeah. burning Harry Potter books and people were like, oh my gosh. I mean, uh, you know, which is fine. Everybody wants to make some news. Sure. But this guy <laughs> apologized a day later after being yelled at by the rest of the church. By the rest of the church or by the internet community? The internet community went to the church and so other church people were like, hey, you really shouldn't have done that. And he's like, all right, I get back. According to the article that I read, the foundation said the burning was intended to alert parishioners to the bad influence emanating from magic and the occult. In his apology, Reverend Jaroshevich claimed the jester had not been aimed at books, in quotes, as such. <laughs> Which I thought was, it's like, no, it's by burning books. I didn't mean that we should burn books, uh, which just seemed like a very lame bit of backtracking from a dubious proposition to begin with. All right, Chris, um, I would like to now move us on to This Week in TV Guide. This week in TV Guide, I have a TV Guide here from 1981, from this day and date, the time that we are now taping. And I would like to just read to you, Chris, a few of the most brilliant log lines that we would be watching were we home from school at this time in 1980. First off, Partridge Family, always a good source yes. of great log lines. Insomnia's the problem. Danny won a racehorse that can't sleep. I haven't thought much about horses sleeping and how they do that. I know they stand. I don't know what then happens if the horse can't sleep. What sort of problems? Like, yeah, does he I don't keep know. like calling him? Like, hey, hey, Danny. Yeah, I don't you know. Up? Something a little more serious at four o'clock, Our Magazine on the NBC affiliate visits with Christy McNichol and Father George Clements, who adopted a 12 year old boy. Also, a discussion of the harmful effects of children's idolizing celebrities. Well, I am sure that is a piece that has aged very badly, <laughs> considering that all these years later, we realize ain't nothing wrong with ain't that. Ain't nothing wrong with that at all. Now, 4.30, there's a great movie, 4.30 movie, I guess. I think that was like a thing. There was like an afternoon movie. Man, this calls back to Escape to Witch Mountain. Ah. Uh, a Star is Born. Ah. I'm intrigued. I am going to go home tonight and see if this is available. Ah. Because I can't think of a better 90 minutes of my life than to watch 1972's Frogs. 
Nature strikes back at man in this terror tale filmed in Florida's Eden State Park, starring Ray Moland, Sam Elliott, and Joan Van Ark. Ribbit, ribbit, I'm jumping for joy at the idea of watching <laughs> frogs. There's that whole subgenre of 70 horrors thing. Yes. Little animals. Like yeah. Piranha. Didn't I read uh, one last swarm. week? Um, well, that was one about cats. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. they are evil. I mean, that's yeah. not, that's a documentary. This is a hilarious Gilligan's Island logline. Given that the concept of Gilligan's Island is that this very limited amount of people are trapped together on an island, a case of mixed identities throws the islanders into confusion. How can you forget who everyone is when there's only like six of you? I do remember there was an episode where a Russian spy who looked exactly like Gilligan uh, showed up. Maybe that's this one. Famously, and I was so excited, I actually let out a squeal of joy when I saw this because this is such a famous episode of this show. Uh -huh. On this day in 1980, it was on in a rerun at 6 p.m. Happy Days. Conclusion of a three-part program in which Fonzie is challenged to a water skiing duel while visiting Hollywood for a screen test. That's the Jump the Shark moment. That gives us Jump the Shark. Yeah. The Jump the Shark episode was airing this day in 1980. Very appropriate that we're recording an episode. It does. Now, Let's Chris- where's Jumping the Shark? Also, on channel 50 at 7 p.m., granted, you might have to work a little harder to get down there on the dial, but I think that the rewards will speak for themselves when I tell you that the documentary Creating Energy from Garbage was airing. And I bet nobody recorded it, which is why global warming is happening right now. Last two that I have for you, Chris, In Search Of. Leonard Nimoy hosting In Search Of. I wish I had the open to that. Matt, hopefully you can play a little bit of the theme song to In Search Of. Thank you. An examination of the theory that the Hindenburg disaster was caused by sabotage. Well, you say sabotage, I say sabotage. I thought it was known that it was caused by sabotage. Uh... You remember how earlier, what's her name, Christy McNichol was warning us about the harmful effects of children's <laughs> idolizing celebrities? That's well, the, yeah. this was a theme because at 7.30, that's Hollywood. A look at teenagers' movie idols from Benny Goodman to Pat Boone. <laughs> uh, so, I think any parent today would be like, ah, that's fine. If we just sort of, if that's the range honey, of idols. We've, we've got to talk about Chris. His Pat Boone obsession <laughs> is really getting to be too much. <laughs> anyway, those are a few selections from This Week in TV Guide, 1980. Oh, to be there again. Chris, what are you taking us out on this week? Well, one of the things that Terms of Endearment's tone captures is the way life is made up of... Let me do it again. One is of, it possible once? I mean, this is amazing. Um, again, going to do it again. Cut that and... Uh, no, no, and no cuts. The, no cuts and tights. <laughs> One of the things that Terms of Endearment's tone captures is the way life is made up of things that happen. How we then experience those things, turning them into tragedies or triumphs, is the last and truest bastion of autonomy, or godhood. So... Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't 
be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle. That's the thing. Ain't always look on the bright side of life. Thanks for listening to Fullcast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.